I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Is it not like Bagel, though? Like Bagelsman. Nagelsman. Nagelsman? Nagelsman. <laughs> Nagelsman. Shit. This should make a great introduction. It's Sunday, which means it's time for the front three with me, Adam Bolwood. No one else beginning this week, but Statman Dave is here. Oh, yes. Alongside the one and only Chris Hennage. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. We're going to be reviewing all the Premier League action from the weekend, as well as doing a little chat on Hoffenheim, one of the teams taking the Bundesliga by storm. But there's only one place to start, and that is with today's big game, Southampton nil. Chelsea 2. It was an impressive win for Chelsea, Chris. I mean, they weren't being talked about at the start of the season or even a few weeks ago as a team that could compete for the Premier League, but that has changed since the switch to the 3-4-3, which we've spoken about last week. It's four clean sheets now to the 3-4-3. It's four clean sheets now and 11 goals scored since that defeat to Arsenal. And the idea of Chelsea as title challengers is now very real, Chris. It is. I think it took Conte just a little bit of time to work out how best to use the players at his disposal. But watching them today against uh, Southampton, I thought it was a brilliant away performance. But it, I, in some ways, it also made me kind of revise an opinion I held last time, which was, or last week, sorry, which was against Man United, it felt like they only needed these flickers of, of quality to undo them. I actually think it's something they have a lot more control over. And I think it's something they've turned on. So they can stay, and they did this for good periods of the game when they wanted to just kind of frustrate Southampton and force them into mistakes. Sort of sit quite deep, quite compact, stay rigid, and just force Southampton to try and find gaps that just weren't there. And then when the frustration sets in and they make a mistake, that's when they spring out and that's when they use the pace and and the power that they've got in midfield. And that front three as well, if you you pardon the, the name check there, that is a really fun trio to watch at the minute because I think Costa is as big and bulky as he is. He's not maybe the most mobile forward all the time, but you can't say that of Hazard and Pedro. They are the antithesis of that. And it works in tandem so well. And I completely agree. Yes, Chelsea are uh, title challengers at this point. I think I, I just want to see them at home a little bit now as well, just to see how that potentially changes. Because I think it's it's an easier idea to put a, an away from home I don't know if it's going to be something they can do all the time at, at Stamford Bridge because I think actually teams might try and mirror it a little bit. 
Well, Chris mentions Diego Costa there. Firstly, Dave, um, I mean, for him, uh, the transformation in terms of his form from the underachievement last season has been pretty remarkable. He also became today the fastest player to reach 40 goals in Premier League history, doing it in just 64 games over overall. And Hazard as well, as Chris mentioned, he's already scored five goals this season and he's looking back to his best, isn't he, Dave? Yeah, it really is. I think those two players are two of the players that are really benefiting from this system. I suppose Diego Costa was playing quite well in, in the 4-3-3 that Chelsea were playing at the start of the season. But this switch to the, the three at the back really works. It works for Conte. I think Conte is a three at the back coach. And it's a different thing to coach a three at the back versus a four at the back. And I think it just fits for him. You know, Juventus, why Juventus was so good was because of the 3-5-2 with the three centre-backs, the two wing-backs. And it's a similar sort of defensive structure for them. But it, what it does is it allows Costa and Hazard to just wait on the counter-attack. You know, Costa's goal today was wonderful. You know, a lovely curled shot that, you know, crept in around the goalkeeper into the back of the net. And then Hazard just playing so well and free again. But it's that, the tactical aspect of it, of, uh, you know, Conte having Victor Moses and uh, Pedro on one side, you know, two players that work quite hard and do track back and will regain, regain the shape. And on the other side, having someone a little bit more defensively minded in... Um, Alonso and then having Hazard and just waiting and Matic coming over and and shuttling and and sort of blocking off that space but it does allow Hazard that freedom on the counter-attack it allows him to drift allows him to do whatever he wants it's quite it's a very similar formation to what Borussia Dortmund played um, in some stages especially against Bayern Munich under Thomas Tuchel with this you know the 3-4-3 that switches to a 5-4-1 but what it does that system it it allows you to press it allows you to sit deep it allows you to counter-attack it's so diverse what you know again well, something that I said on Day Talks after the United game, United didn't attack uh, the outside centre-backs of Chelsea. Again, Southampton didn't do that. But then that's credit to Conte and credit to how he set this team up and credit to what Chelsea are doing. But those two players back in form, you know, since moving to the, the 3-4-3, um, Chelsea have gone on to win four games. They've kept four clean sheets, scored 11 goals and won 12 out of 12 points in the Premier League. Hazard's stats are uh, equally as impressive since they switched there. You know, three goals, one assist, six key passes, 10 shots, 22 dribbles with a 73% uh, success rate. So Hazard's loving it. Costa's loving it. David Luiz is loving it. He looks like a £50 million defender again, you know, with two centre-backs next to him. That's Bill Equator's distributing the ball well out the back. It just works all together. Kante looks better again. Especially with Kante with France and Chelsea at the start of the season was he playing a single pivot and he's not good enough on the ball. But you give him an energetic role in any system as part of a two. And he is up there with the world's best. Well, another player who's also impressing, Dave, is, of course, Victor Moses. And Dark Killer writes in on Twitter saying, what are your thoughts on the transformation of Moses into a solid wing-back under Conte? He's a good young English player, right? Um, did you see that's the, uh, there's the slip from Jamie Carragher today? Was it oh, Carragher? Sorry, Redknapp. Sorry, Redknapp. Jamie Carragher. Yeah, Redknapp. Of course it's Redknapp. Who said, it's nice to see a young English talent getting, getting time talking about Victor <laughs> Moses with Victor Moses having 24 caps for Nigeria and being nearly 26. <laughs> so, again, Jamie, do your research. But yeah, Victor Moses, I think it's something that Chris sort of tweeted about um, in depth. It's just his energy and his work rate, and defensively, he looks quite good. It's quite interesting. I was thinking about this when I was watching the game, and, it, and I sort of thought back to the uh, um, Roberto Martinez's Wigan side. Where Victor Moses played his best football, what formation were they playing? And he it was a 3 4 3, wasn't it? I think, if I remember right. Correct. But yeah, Chris, you made a good point on, on Twitter about you know, Victor Moses' positioning and how it allows the forwards to, to do their job, right? Yes. Yeah, so essentially, what I tweeted out was that I thought it was a really well rounded performance. So if you look at his chalkboard, which 
I pulled up from the 4-4-2 app. There's a lot of defensive actions, but there's also a lot of offensive actions as well. In fact, I think there's an assist in there. Um, if not, there's at least a few chances created. So I think, and Conte talked about this, the idea that he's been quite surprised by him and that in many ways he's, he's perfect for that position. I think he's spot on. The, the physical and athletic benefits that, that Moses has are being channeled in a good way. I don't think he's the most complicated player. I don't think he has a wealth of tricks like, say, Eden Hazard. But if you need someone who can be dependable and reliable and quite coachable, I think that's Victor Moses. And for me, it makes a lot of sense to, to give them that balance because on the other side, you've got Alonso, who's maybe a little bit more cultured. Whereas I think in Moses, you've got someone who's just pure power and he could actually really help them if they're going to want to keep counterattacking and trying those quick transitions. Chelsea up to fourth then, just a point off the top after that win over Southampton. Two places behind them in six now on 18 points. Everton, Dave, a 2-0 win over West Ham and it was a much needed three points for them after a run of five without a win. Yeah, I think it's, it's massively important that game. You know, both for West Ham, it's a, it's a big game for West Ham to lose. Obviously, I'm hypercritical of Slavin Bilic and have been for X amount of time and it, you know, they had, they've hit some really bad form at the moment and it's a worry for West Ham again getting undone um, it, both goals sort of came from a situation where they were sort of broken on and you know structurally not being good enough at the back and not being organised but I think you know Lukaku's return to form for for Everton this season has really pushed them forward he's the first player to be directly involved in 10 goals this season that's 7 goals and 3 assists you know the assist was fantastic for Ross Barkley he's pulled wide into the channel crossed the ball you know for Barkley to put the ball into the back of net but Lukaku is such a threat and he's improving. You know, before, uh, maybe two seasons ago, he wouldn't have done that. You know, his first touch wouldn't have been good enough. He would have knocked the ball out of play or, you know, or so forth. But he's really evolving as a player and he's sort of becoming a, a complete forward that many teams around the world would want. A target man that's like a poacher that is bringing this creativity into his game. So Lukaku is key to this form. But also, credit to Ronald Koeman, someone that I criticised at the start of the season. Sometimes I'm right, sometimes I'm wrong. <laughs> what about uh, Ross Barkley? today Dave because arguably he put in a man of the match performance he's spoken after the game about how he's been through a difficult spell after scoring his first goal today since the opening day of the season it feels like a big season for him in terms of proving that he can fulfill that potential Ross Barkley does have that potential um, and again a fantastic performance against West Ham United it's quite interesting how Koeman's managed him you know he's kind of like broken him down and built him back up like quite a a military um, response in a way where you know, he slated him. He slated him in the press for about two weeks. Then Ross Barkley's form really dropped off. But he, we're now sort of seeing a better, um, you know, Ross Barkley that's affecting the 90 minutes of the game. Again, I do feel Ross Barkley eventually could be a, a striker, a number nine, but playing off Lukaku at the moment, he's looking very, very good. And if he can get his form, it'll be, you know, good for Lukaku, good for Everton, and also potentially good for England uh, going forward because he is explosive. But it is always that tunnel vision that's always been the issue in his game. But if Koeman is breaking him down and building him back up, maybe he'll sort of, you know, eradicate that part of his game that was a little bit too rash when he gets into the final third. Mm, Everton up to sixth then, Chris. I mean, in terms of their season, what do you think constitutes success for Ronald Koeman this year? I'd be tempted to say Europa League position. It's it's difficult to quantify because I don't think... Uh, it's believable for them to try and get the Champions League. Even the Europa League just feels like a little bit of a grab because I think you look at their their summer and the takeover and the idea that now they're cash happy and they're going to be this huge change. 
I don't think there was drastic changes. They spent money, definitely. They got the likes of Balassi and, and Ganagay in. But it wasn't a complete overhaul in the way that, say, City did when uh, they got their money in. I think Mark Hughes was the, the coach. So I feel as if Europa League would be good for them. Again, it, it's almost... In some ways, it's almost kind of like racing to the summer and seeing what you can do when you've got a little bit more time and the coach is a bit more stable. So I, I think, personally, Europa League is, is the best shot for them. But they're impressing me. Like I said, the more I watch Guy, or, or Gay, however you want to pronounce it, in the middle, the more I think that Villa side must have been absolute trash because he really does look like <laughs> the were. perfect example of it. Yeah, I mean, you know, you watch him and... Uh, to me, is the perfect example of what you want a modern defensive midfielder to be. Um, so, with the Villa thing, it was quite interesting because I remember saying last season how I thought he was a really, really good player. But mm. I think the issue with that Villa team was there was no one that was controlling the game. There was no one like yeah. dictating the play, and that's not the role that Gay should play. Gay should be the the Kante, the the running man, the tackling man, the intercepting man, not the dictator. And I think that was the criticism that I heard from from Villa fans, and fair enough. But you know, fitting into this Everton team, he kind of like fits in perfectly. Mm, no, I'd agree with that. I think I think that was the problem is that he was probably doing the same thing that he's doing now, but he was then giving it to players who couldn't do anything with it. Whereas now he's actually got the outlets, <laughs> which is, I mean, look, it sounds harsh to to trash that Villa team, but it went down without much of a fight. And you know, I'm sure we can think of another side that is unfortunately paralleling that this season. Well, uh, that brings us nicely on to uh, to Sunderland, Chris, uh, losing four one against Arsenal. We'll start with Arsenal first. They continuing to look good albeit against the seemingly hopeless Sunderland side as you said there two goals for Sanchez uh, two for Giroud unbeaten now in 14 matches and to be honest they look better with every passing week don't they Chris? They do they're starting to find a bit of rhythm and I mean I talked about the the Borough game and, and it did seem to upset a few Arsenal fans when I said that they should sign Mauro Icardi just because I think as as talented as Giroud is relying on him to stay healthy all season, it, it seems a very Arsenal idea um, in the sense of why take that risk when you could potentially sign someone that would give you so much added firepower and could even let you go crazy in the Champions League if you wanted to. So I think that was borne out again by that uh, game against Sunderland because if you look, both of, of Giroud's goals, they, I think they come from, from wide positions in general. The goals came from, from wide positions. And give credit to, to Sanchez as well, because he was kind of one that I tagged as not being willing to to play inside the penalty box and be a target forward. He did exactly that against Sunderland, and it got him a goal. Um, it's far too easy to just blame Kone for that. I, I think it's wonderful movement, personally. Well, Chris mentioned Sanchez there, Dave. Uh, two goals today. Um, what have you made of his form this season, Dave? Because last season, arguably somewhat underperformed, but already in the last eight games, he's been involved in eight goals. Uh, a slight change of position under Wenger in some games this season have meant that his form's improved, and that's been a real boost for Arsenal, hasn't it, Dave? Yeah, massively. He's definitely the, one of the best players in the Premier League this season, up with, uh, I'd say, Diego Costa and maybe Lukaku in an attacking sense. But he's really he's evolving in this role. You know, against Middlesbrough... Why Sanchez up front didn't work was because of the space that they weren't given. You know, they were very restricted in that area. For some reason, Sunderland didn't pull the same moves out. And Sanchez had space. He picked up little pockets. He kept on playing those, you know, the chipped clip through balls over the top for runners coming inside. And Arsenal just ticked. But he took his goals so well. That header for the first was absolutely fantastic. The movement and the ability to to beat, uh, you know, a much taller, more physical centre-back in the air 
just through sheer hunger and determination was fantastic. And then the second goal he scored, what composure. And if you see, you know, this is classic Alexis Sanchez. This is the Sanchez that we saw at Udinese. We saw spells at Barcelona, but we always see for Chile, you know, very hungry, very aggressive, but so composed and so good. But I would say Olivier Giroud has a part to play this season for Arsenal. Because when, you know, when Sanchez doesn't work, when, you know, when he's playing false nine and the space is closed off, something that, we, you know, when me and Lawrence discussed Son and Sanchez last season, last season, last week on the the front free uh, question and answer video on, on uh, YouTube. We were talking about how Olivier Giroud, sometimes you need that battering ram and you need someone to play off. And it worked perfectly. You know, Wenger starting with a false nine and then operating with a target man with Sanchez off him as a sort of his second striker or pushing Sanchez out wide. It just works. Arsenal have a lot of variation and we are all waiting for March just to see whether Arsenal are still hmm. in the race. And if they are... Why couldn't they win this league? You know, City still pushing with the three centre-backs, still going down that line. Liverpool, again, really good. But it's so open again. It feels like the Premier League was so open last season. And I was like, that's never going to happen again. But it's the same thing this year. Like Arsenal mm. are title challengers. Chelsea are title challengers. Liverpool, City, title challengers. Manchester United, <laughs> Europa League challengers. Yeah, I was about to say, we'll come on to them. Um, Sunderland, though. <laughs> Chris, I mean, uh, we do have some rather depressing chats about them in the last few weeks, but Ryan Gibson sums it up, writing in, are Sunderland going to win a single game this season? I mean, it's the most they can hope to achieve, breaking the record for the lowest points tally, which I believe is 11, set by Derby uh, back in 08. I mean, it's now the worst ever start to a Premier League season uh, by this team, Chris. And again, it's just not looking good, is it? Yeah, they had more points when they got 15 that season and 19. So the, the the subtle change is, I think, the resignation of it. And again, we had that Villa team last year that we talked about and the real kind of acceptance very early on that this team was likely going to go down. I see the same with Sunderland. And again, this is another situation where I kind of, I kind of got grief. I'm not going to lie. I got grief for, for saying that um, essentially you can't just keep demanding Ella Short to put money in. I think... Yes, you can blame Ellis Short for making bad decisions, but I don't think you can blame him for bad intentions because he's tried to to run that football club in a good way. The difficulty is, and, and this is where I think I got a little bit of kind of pithy response, was I think American owners in general struggle because the scope for failure in football is so much greater than American sports because you have a much wider pool of potential candidates for jobs and positions. So... He's been able to, to look at a, a CV or a resume like David Moyes and say, OK, he was fairly stable at Everton. He did this, he did that. But that doesn't necessarily tell you what he's doing right now, which is really, I think he's regressed a lot as a coach, David Moyes. I don't think he's the same kind of, I wouldn't say forward thinker, but the same very well-organised, disciplined manager that he was when he came through at Everton. Um, and in terms of blaming Short for not spending money, Sunderland have spent 150% more than they've sold in the last five years. That's not sustainable in, in any business. You can't have that gross difference between outgoings and incomings. And even now, the lack of syllable assets in that team is a concern. You might sell Kone for 12, maybe. I think his price has probably gone down since the start of the season. God, he was awful, though. He was absolutely awful against Arsenal. You know, the exactly. mistakes that he was making, positionally shocking. He was the one that got done for the... The Sanchez goal, you know, the, the near post, you've got to be defending that. And there are a few times where it looked like he he was wearing ice skates or something. He just positionally shocking and then like falling over when he was trying to recover. It's poor. Exactly. That's that's the problem is you have 
I mean, even the guys that you would say, okay, there's maybe a bit of sale value in there. Didier and Dong, I would say you'll not get you'll not get what you paid for him. Let's put it that way. And even Jermaine Defoe, say you get ten million for him, that's not a huge amount. It re- it really isn't. Um, and if they go down, it's going to be it's going to be very difficult. I sense there'll be a lot of change. And we've seen with clubs like Villa where you have that bit of change, and it's really not a guaranteed success. They're slowly turning around with Bruce now. But that's the start of the season. You make a few bad decisions. You don't prepare the right way. You, there's no guarantee that you go up. Individual quality won't carry you through. Rooted to the bottom of the table still, then with just two points after 10 games. Uh, eight of those being losses. Doesn't look good for Sunderland. On the other hand, Arsenal joint top effectively, 23 points uh, along with Manchester City. Uh, and as Dave says, looking good for a title challenge. We'll see... If they're a different beast to what they were last year when they when they do occasionally fall to in March. But what about Manchester United, Dave? I mean, you mentioned them there as potential Europa League contenders, perhaps a downgrade uh, in terms of their title challenge. It was a massively frustrating afternoon for them uh, against Burnley at home, a nil-nil draw. How didn't they win, Dave? I don't know. Black magic, maybe. Um, it was a, it was a crazy game, a game where United dominated and United should have won the game. They were so good, um, and they created so many good chances. They had thirty seven shots on goal. That's the most shots they've ever had since Opta started collecting stats in two thousand and three oh four. And the amount of chances like and Ibrahimovic could have put away, the matter chance, matter hit the post, United hit the bar through deflection. To be fair to you know someone like Tom Eaton was fantastic. Ben Mee had a, a pretty decent game, um, but I, I'm I'm happy. I'm positive. This United team compared to last year is a lot better. It's creating chances and it's really dominating games. The the issue is it's that it's the media hype surrounding Manchester United at the moment that it's very negative. As, as a fan, I'm quite happy. Paul Pogba had a brilliant game. Wan Mata ran the show. Zlatan Ibrahimovic, if he just finished off one of his chances, United would have won. You know, that's a, a slightly worrying thing. It's Zlatan Ibrahimovic's form. But apart from that, Rojo looked good again. United kept another clean sheet. Um, I, I'm not worried at all. I think that this United team will click. It will click in the second half of the season when Mourinho's methods are getting through to the players. You know, this was down, you know, United down to 10 men as well. That under Herrera, the first yellow was definitely a yellow card. The second one was a slip. He, it, was, it was a complete accident. It was a terrible, terrible refereeing decision from Klattenberg to send him off. Um, you know, given the way that Klattenberg had refereed the rest of the game, it was quite fluid. He was letting tackles go, wasn't booking people on their first tackle and so forth. But then Herrera slips and you can see him slip. You can see him trying to stop. And he just, you know, his feet go beneath him and he takes the man out. And it's not a yellow card. But that didn't even matter. United went the last um, half, the last sort of third of the game. United still dominated with with nine with uh, nine men, um, nine outfield players. So... I'm not worried at all. I kind of enjoyed the performance. I quite enjoyed the game. It was just a little bit frustrating that United couldn't put the ball over the line. But you do come against that. You come against that sometimes mm. where the luck is not with you. Are you not more worried about Zlatan in terms of this is now uh, apparently the worst spell in his career? He hasn't scored for six games. And as, so, as a, <laughs> go on, go on, get go. I'll, I'll take you back to the, uh, the 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 great. Was it the 2012-13 season? In the Premier League, Adam. Um, Take me back. And there was a uh, there was a, as a, as an old fella um, called Robin. I think his name's Van Van Persie or something like that. And he went on to be Premier. Um, led United to the title. Scored one of, scored one of the best goals we've seen in recent years in the Premier League. A brilliant volley with his left foot. And he went twelve hours without scoring a goal that season. So 
I am not worried. I think Zlatan is getting into the right areas, and as soon as he gets one, he'll get loads. He should have mm. the, the one at the, the one at the back post was the one that he should have scored. You know the bike, the spectacular scissor kick that he put away. You know being played clean through. You want him to score those goals, and he didn't. But that the one where Paul Pogba whipped in a brilliant ball to the back post. He's got to put that away, unfortunately, mm. and he didn't. Cost Kane United the three points, but yeah, yeah. he's getting the chances. He, 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 he's, he's, I think he had twelve shots in the game. He's so. different to Van Persie in that he is. 35 now, Zlatan of course it remains to be seen whether he will rediscover that form, I mean hopefully for me he doesn't because otherwise of course I'm going to be dying my hair peroxide blonde, <laughs> which made my girlfriend very upset but talk to me a little bit about Paul Pogba then Dave because obviously there's so much focus on his performance, so much pressure on him and Eddie MUFC wrote in on Twitter to say how comes nobody's talking about Pogba when he plays well and you yourself say he put in a good performance it was cracking. He created three clear-cut chances that should have been assists. The, the first one where he played, where Zlatan played a one-two with him in the penalty area, a lovely flick back. Zlatan gets the shot on target, blocked. That should have been a goal. The second one, a lovely rolled over the ball with his foot, played a through ball to Juan Mata. Juan Mata missed the chance, and then the ball at the end from the left wing, fantastic whipped in cross. Zlatan has to put that way. So on a better day, that's three assists. And that changes, you know, that changes his, the opinion drastically. I think people need to start remembering that Paul Pogba is a central midfielder. The commentary I was listening to was an NBC commentary, and there was a, a Scottish fella that was doing the commentary, and he kept on saying, "89 million pounds." So we've got a, you've got to measure Pogba on Neymar, Messi, and Ronaldo. Neymar, Messi, and Ronaldo are forwards. They score goals. That's what they get paid to do. Central midfielders get paid to win tackles, complete passes. Create chances, get shots on goal, you know, everything. And that's what Paul Pogba did against Burnley. You know, won three tackles, completed four dribbles, created six chances, six shots, completed 87 passes, which was the third best in the Premier League this weekend. And it's insane that the the media, because he hasn't scored a goal or got an assist, uh, are sort of jumping on him. And it's very lazy. It's very lazy German mm. journalism. It's very easy to say, oh, Paul Pogba's a waste of money. But you watch, you know, Paul Pogba was frustrating in the first half against Manchester City in the EFL Cup, the game that I went to, I agree. Very frustrating, annoyed me. He was trying too much, but was fantastic against Burnley. And again, he's 23 years old and Mourinho's playing him in a number of different roles. You know, playing him as a central midfielder in a three on the left-hand side, playing him in a two and a four-two-three-one, or playing him as a number 10. You know, he's still moving around. He's still, um, you know, he's still working out what Paul Pogba's best position is and how he should play in the Premier League. Mm. But anyway, I'm going to go to a little, a little thing from last season. This is something that I tweeted out that I found very interesting. So last season in Syria, after the first 10 games, um, Pogba scored one goal and got one assist. In the Premier League this season, he scored one goal and got zero assists. In the next 28 Syria games, he went on to score seven goals and got 11 assists. In that time frame, in the first 10 games, when Pogba wasn't playing at his optimum level, Juventus won three out of those 10 games. In the next 28 games where Pogba was dominating, scoring goals, getting assists and running the show, Juventus won 26 out of the last 28 games and went on to win the Scudetto. And that's something that we need to take into consideration as well, is that some players start start a bit later on in the season. And I think with this United team is, it will kick on second half of the season. I really feel that. I really feel that's what's going to happen because... The performances aren't bad. Like the, the Chelsea performance was bad, but Stoke should have been three points. Burnley should have been three points. Mm. You know, you take those you take those two games and United are you know are pushing top four. Simple as that. You know, the, I'm I'm fine with it. I think Paul Pogba's getting a lot of criticism that he doesn't deserve. It's interesting to hear Dave talk about that, Chris, in terms of uh, the form picking up in the second half of the season, talking about how he's happy. 
as United fan because obviously, as well as Pogba being the focus of so much media attention, of course, Jose Mourinho is as well. And once again, he took the headlines after being sent to the stands during, to the, during the game, sending his assistant in his place to fulfill his post-match media duties. I mean, this is the, the side of Jose Mourinho. Many critics expected to see when he joined the club, a Mourinho who, you know, in recent years can't help but become the story ahead of the club uh, with, the, with the pressure mounting, you know, dressing room leaks we're seeing again and this sort of siege mentality that from the outside doesn't look particularly helpful. I mean, Chris, do you think he's struggling to deal with the pressure of, ma- of managing Manchester United or do you feel it's being blown out of proportion, essentially? This is the one instance or this is the one period of his career where I really can't tell what he's trying to do. So often when you look at him behaving this way, you come away and say, well, he's deflecting. He's deflecting from the players. He's taking the, the pressure off them. And he's making, as you say, himself a story. This is the first time where I look at it and I think, is he really doing that? Or is he just being impetuous for the sake of it? And is he just essentially revealing his true character? It's, it is so difficult to tell. Um, I think... I think, honestly, we're still talking about the players and their struggles. It's just feeding back into Mourinho and his decisions. That's the difference. And for me, I think they were unlucky yesterday. I think, honestly, uh, it, there's a degree of revisionism, with I think, with Sir Alex Ferguson at times, where it's portrayed as if every week was golden football and they used to turn teams over 2-3-0, 4-0. There were some weeks where they weren't that great. And... I think, but for some inspirational goalkeeping from Tom Heaton, who again is returning to his old clubs so or has immense motivation to do so, it's it's that's the difference between them winning and losing, and it's fine margins. And I think making it out like the whole team's about to explode is a little bit far. Yes, they haven't performed to the levels we expected because of the players they bought. I don't think that's enough to to throw everything out. I I just think at the minute they need some stability. They need a little bit of calm to the whole affair because right now it's. It feels like emotionally with Manchester United, things are jumping from one extreme to the other. So it's incredulity and shock that they lost to Chelsea 4-0 and then it's an immense high that they beat. What was realistically a a depleted, not a depleted, sort of, I wouldn't even go as far as say reserve, but it, a, a weakened Manchester City side, if you will, to then, again, the return of incredulity and not being able to beat Burnley. It's... It's just very difficult to to try and find the, the truth when there's so much kind of static in amongst it all. Hmm. I mean, as a United fan, Dave, where do you think that truth lies? Because from the outside, it does appear that Mourinho has changed in the past sort of six years. And these tactics, these mind games that we used to call them, seem to be less uh, sort of intentional attempts to take the pressure off his players and onto him. And as Chris says, more of his essential character. I think the thing with Mourinho is that because it's not refreshing and it's not new, that we, as a, as a, you know, the media knows what he does and he knows his game. So, yeah, maybe they're not as effective as as they were, but I, I just find it perplexing in a way. Like he's, in, it seems like United are going the right way. Like compared to last season, Louis Van Gaal, United are going the right way, and you know these things that he used to do. Um, he's now painted in, a, in sort of the bad guy, and that's perfect for Manchester United. You know, the devil on the crest. They are the bad guys. Everyone used to hate Manchester United when they were so dominant. I, I like that. I appreciate that. I think the media at the moment is more um, reciprocal for players, you know, for managers like Jurgen Klopp because they're positive and they 
embrace players and they, they try and, yes, we're going to do this together, we're going to win, and it paints a good picture for, t- for clubs like Liverpool. And, you know, Pep Guardiola, for example, he's a manager that always, when he leaves either, you know, when he left Spain and when he left Germany, the media hated him. He got very short-tempered, uh, you know, being very obnoxious in press conferences, the same thing. But right now, because he's new and people, you know, the English media don't know much about him yet, he's painted in this good light, he's painted like a hero. And that's what it is. Mourinho, whatever Mourinho would do, yet did yesterday, he'd be painted wrong. Again, he was complaining about a penalty incident. There potentially wasn't a penalty incident. Damien going down a little bit too easy. There was a slight bit of contact, can see, but the, the movement of Damien to throw himself on the floor was a bit over overzealous in a way. So I think if, if he hadn't done that, so you know, he hadn't gone down so, so dramatically, it would have been fine. But Mourinho complaining about that, fine. Again, he's diverting. We're talking about Mourinho and we're not talking about Manchester United not picking up three points. And that, for me, is perfect. Mm. Manchester United in eighth then on 15 points, eight points behind the leaders. Manchester City as it stands. Uh, another team who suffered a somewhat frustrating draw at home. Uh, on Saturday were Spurs taking on last season's champions Leicester. Somewhat at this point in the afternoon I was there at White Hart Lane and the atmosphere has to be said it was very frustrated, it was very agitated not just because of the performance of the referee which I think it's fair to say was somewhat questionable but because the game brought to light some concerns to the surface uh, for Spurs fans. Um, for one, the lack of options from the bench. Um, Eric Lamella dropped out beforehand with illness it would have been great to be able to bring him on later in the game. I mean, his intensity, his willing to hassle opponents was noticeably absent yesterday. Um, but elsewhere, there, there wasn't many game-changing options that Pochettino could bring on. So that lack of depth potentially is concerning. Um, of course, there are a few key players missing, as well as Lamella missing. Um, key players like Toby Oliveira were missing. And of course, Harry Kane. Um, there's been a real struggle to break down teams in the last few weeks and a real lack of a cutting edge. It just demonstrates how vital and how important Harry Kane has become to Spurs. I mean, Vincent Janssen's efforts were, were admirable. He scored his first Premier League goal from the spot, but with him up front, instead of Kane, when Kane's missing, there is this real lack of dynamism without him. Um, hopefully he'll be coming back for the North London derby. Um, and as well, there seems to be this real lack of creativity from deep. We've gone with Dembele and Wanyama in midfield. Uh, while Toby Alvaro is injured, Dyer's dropped back in defence for the last couple of games. And although it's a, a powerful midfield too, there seems to be a real lack of penetration from deep. So, um, does the lack of, uh, you know, Deli Ali's contribution in the final third, you know, his goals and assists, does that concern you? Or is his level of performance still up there? Well, it's not just Deli Ali. I'd say, you know, he scored three goals this season, to be fair to him, and he tried to drive forward yesterday and struggled. But without Kane, with the pressure on Janssen, who's trying to find his feet, the goals need to come from elsewhere in the team, and particularly that attacking midfield. And the most worrying aspect of that attacking midfield right now is Christian Eriksen. You know, no doubt a massively talented player, but a frustrating player. For many Spurs fans this season, his performance was poor yesterday and his form this season, it just hasn't been there. Um, you know, yesterday bottled a few 50-50 challenges, which fans never like to see. Um, his corners, he failed to clear the first man more than once. A frustrating performance from him and, you know, he can be such an important player and he can be such an influential player. But the goal threat's not there from him uh, and the creativity is lacking from him and the intensity was lacking so 
in terms of the goals coming throughout the team, it is concerning. You know, Ali and Son struggled yesterday, but Ali has those three goals. As I said, Son was the player of the month in October, even though he somewhat dipped in the last few games. But Ericsson starting to have to question his inclusion in the team because he's been so poor. And this game yesterday sort of really shone a light on that as a concern, as well as a few other things that I've mentioned um, that even though we're unbeaten, are worrying. Could I run two theories by you, Adam, and get your opinion as someone that watches them regularly? Come on and hit me. I think it feels like there's a lack of width outside of the fullbacks. So if they're not able to do anything in the final third from out wide, I think you seem to struggle. And also, the more I see of Vincent Janssen, the more he does not look anything like Harry Kane in the way that he plays, never mind quality. He seems to be someone that actually floats outside of the box, likes to pull wide, whereas Kane... To me, yes, when there's a chance to run the channels, that's one thing. But for the most part, he inhabits the penalty box and stays relatively central. Yeah, I'd say on the first point, I think, you know, Walker and Rose were exceptionally yesterday, bombing up and down the wings. You know, Walker was uh, fantastic, got a really dangerous ball at one point uh, to Deli Alley where we hit the crossbar from. But you're right in terms of the attacking wide players, there's a. There is a lack of pace there. There is a lack of width. I think when uh, Pochettino made a substitution, potentially too late, he brought on Nkudu, um, who made a difference. He was stuck wider. He was trying to get down the line. He was trying to get balls into the box. Uh, we did create a few sort of half chances from that. And in terms of Kane and Janssen, I thought Janssen looked decent yesterday i think this is build-up play it really is it's it's the the, the complete the difference in the two players is build-up play i think when vincent jansen gets the ball the only thing that goes through his head is can i score a goal can i get a shot away whereas harry kane is a footballer and he brings people in it's kind of like foot manager when you play your striker as a poacher vincent jansen's that poacher harry kane's more your deep lying forward you know on your support role that's getting involved in the build-up play some of his link-up play with Ericsson and Deli Alia last season was phenomenal like a you know like a number 10 like a an attacking midfielder like a you know not Ronaldinho but play with a great touch and mm. very agile you know elegant in a way and I think Spurs massively missed that mm. and as soon as he comes back I think your form will will rock it because defensively you've massively improved that was the first goal that you conceded in open play this season and that is a yeah. Impressive after what ten games, and it was the one. It was a sort of a slip up. Nine it was games. the one slip yeah. uh, from Victoria that led to it. So, um, Poor you're right. Victoria is the Premier League best player, in my opinion. I love Victoria. Great player. Um, <laughs> but I think you're right. Harry Kane offers so much, not just his goals, but in terms of the way Spurs play, that without it, we do suffer. And Janssen, you can see when he's on the ball because his confidence is low, his instinct is uh, even naturally, um, as well as affected by by his recent form, is to shoot, to try and you know, try and influence the game and try and get that goal when perhaps he should be uh, getting his head up and trying to uh, to involve other players in the play. But Spurs undefeated, it has to be said, still in the Premier League. Um, looking forward to Wednesday night. Uh, it's a huge night uh, for our Champions League chances. So hopefully we can we can arrest this this recent uh, drop in form. I think it's is it five or six games without a win for Spurs now in all competitions. So hopefully on Wednesday night against Leverkusen that can all change. Um, Moving on though, Crystal Palace 2, Liverpool 4, Liverpool moving level on points at the top of the table after a goal fest, goal fest I should say, of a win over Palace. Um, a thrilling game, and again, Liverpool looked so good going forward, Chris. Um, at the back, it's a slightly different story. Yeah, I think 
I, I just wonder sometimes if if you can't have both worlds, if you can't have an attack that's that fluid and that interchanging, and then also defensive stability with it. I mean, it's it's probably a question that Dave can answer even better than I can. But going forward, they are brilliant. They're, there doesn't seem to be a plan, and I mean that as a compliment, because they just float around each other, Mane, Coutinho and Firmino. And in, in so many ways, it seems like actually giving Firmino less structure seems to help him more than trying to put him in this box of you are a false nine or you are this. Um, and again, I just think Coutinho is someone that I love watching. I, th- I think his ability to open up spaces, to to create them with his movement and the way that he dribbles, it's it's brilliant to watch. Um, I think overall, this is the again, it's the kind of performance that shows Liverpool's potential, which is a, a run at the title. The concern you have and will continue to have is the days where the attack isn't on that high level and the defence is still a little bit leaky because it needs to facilitate the attack. I think it is. It's, it's, a, it's a good point in terms of Liverpool and having the best of both worlds to, to get that freedom. And you know, and a few of the times that Liverpool did break and I think it was the maybe the second goal that they scored with Coutinho driving wide and you, you look at the system there and they've got the three players that are staying quite high up the pitch. And obviously that consequently means that Liverpool are only defending with seven players and that isn't quite ideal. You know, the great AC Milan team um, of Gattuso and Brissini and, and Pirlo, uh, they used to be able to do that because they had the legs and they, they worked very hard, but they also dropped to a four, uh, two banks of four without the ball. And I think that's something Jurgen Klopp might need to work on in terms of his structure. The 4-3-3 is great in terms of its pressing, its harrying and, and, and so, so forth. But I feel like one of those wide players, if it's, you know, Coutinho and Mane out, out wide, one of them needs to drop back and make that you know, the, the second bank of four, finish it off. Whether, you know, if they're if the opposition are attacking down the, the left-hand side, you know, be the right midfielder. And if they're attacking down the right, the left midfielder and, and so forth. And then leave the Coutinho or the Mane, whoever's on the other side, high up the pitch. And I think that's just a little slight tweak that Jürgen Klopp do. But I think Liverpool played very well. The fluidity of their front three is absolutely incredible. Mm. Um, very impressive. Uh, as I said, they are joint top now, essentially on 23 points. But what about Palace, Chris? Because their form is a bit of a worry. They're about winning four now with three defeats in a row, meaning any European aspirations that Pardew mentioned at the start of the season may well be over unless they can arrest this slump. He looks a bit stupid, doesn't he, when he talks about the England job and things like this. I, I, I just think, again, he was so quick to talk about the penalty decisions. I just think he's a, he's a bad football manager. Um <laughs> I can't paint it any other way. I just, I, think he's, he's, I just think he's got one style of play <clears throat> that even then I don't know how set and intricate that is with him. And now he's got the players to do it. I mean, he, he dropped Andros Townsend yesterday for the Liverpool game. And I don't fully understand why, because I would have thought, if anything, you'd want his industry in that kind of game. You would want someone who is going to do hard running and is going to be able to, to get up and down. So it's it's a little bit bizarre. In some ways, I feel bad commenting on this because I've got a very, I think, blind uh, distaste for Pardew the person, which I will admit sometimes bleeds over into Pardew the coach because I do think he's very simplistic and he's so quick to give himself praise. And yet... <sighs> Watching them now, I think they've only won, what, 531 or something like that? And you look at the money spent on Benteke and Townsend and all these people. I mean, even, I think Zaha came. Did Zaha come before him? Yes, he did, I think. 
Um, but you just look at some of the players he's already had through the door. I mean, he got Kabai, who's on, I'd imagine, very big wages. And there doesn't seem to be any improvement. That's a, To me, that's a good collection of players. I don't think they should be struggling at all. I think, if anything, as you said, they should be aiming for a European spot or higher. But that's only when they're at the peak of their power, which I don't think they're anywhere near under Aaron Pardew. Mm. Top of the table, Manchester City, um, after winning 4-0 against West Brom, ending Pep Guardiola's worst run in his managerial career in a clash of the managerial titans we've all been waiting for, Pulis versus Pep. Pep came out on top, though, Chris, uh, with his team scoring four goals, two from Aguero, two from Gundogan. Yes, and the the, the goal scorers for me were the standout men. Um, I think Aguero, you look at him, he's working harder. I think he's a little bit more invested in the the Guardiola ethos after a little bit of a shaky start with with him and Gundogan is just a gorgeous midfielder to watch I think he's he's got such talent in those feet and such a a silk to the way that he plays I would personally and I said this last night I would love to go and see him play live at some point in the season because I think you can appreciate him even more than when you see what he's doing when the ball's not around um this, in, in many ways, was the, the potential of, of Man City. The ability to to brush past what is usually a very difficult to break down West Brom side. I think there will be peaks like this during the course of the season. There will also be difficulties. And I think, ultimately, they can be quite pleased with this. And, and I think their potential will increase or their performances will increase as Aguero continues. Because for me, he is he's a world-class player. Mm. His goal-to-minutes ratio, what he can do off the ball, the kind of goals he can score, everything about him is a world-class footballer to me. Mm. Interesting that Guardiola came out after the game, spoke in glowing terms about Aguero after, as you said, that sort of shaky period where he was dropped against Barcelona and there were question marks over his future. Um, Guardiola sort of looking to end that speculation after the game yesterday. But as Chris says there, Dave, Gundogan, his best performance since moving from Borussia Dortmund to Manchester City, uh, £21 million. Pounds. I mean, he's proving to be a fantastic signing, isn't he? No, absolutely hate it. I'm sorry. I, I hate the City signed Jovetic. I hate that they signed David Silva. And I hate that they signed Gundogan. Gundogan's a player when I you know, really got into my Jurgen Klopp football. Uh, at first it was signed that first season. And then uh, Gundogan, Gundogan sorry, was signed as the replacement. And it took a bit of time for him to adjust. He was... Um, an attacker midfielder. Now he, then he was postured central midfield, and he was just so fantastic. Like I was Chris saying, I'd, I I want to see him playing live. I didn't manage to get him see him playing live when he was fit at Dortmund. Um, but you know, yesterday against West Brom, so so good, so good on the ball, so majestic. And again, you know, we spoke at the start of the season how these two false eights, uh, De Bruyne and Silva, looked so good, um, and we thought that'd be it for the season. But you know, Gundogan has so much talent that. He kind of has to be in this team somewhere. And I still think Pep's not found the right solution yet. I still think this 3-2-4-1 system is a little bit dodgy and it can get done, you know, it can get caught out. But it worked yesterday and it worked perfectly. And the crazy part, there was a, a freeze frame that I, I was watching the, the game and, and um, my, my laptop buffered and there was a freeze frame. And it was um, Kolarov and Otamendi literally in the opposition's half, in, in a natural position of like a central midfielder. And John Stones was stood on the, in the centre the center circle, like on the edge of that, in the opponent's half, marking a man. And this is what Pep Guardiola's doing, and it's, it's absolutely crazy to watch sometimes. Like Defenders in the opposition's half really dominating. It's, 
it's crazy. Football is definitely evolving, and the Premier League will evolve with Pep Guardiola. But I feel he's a slight, a few tweaks, but going to a fantastic talent. If he can stay fit, he will be the best midfielder in the Premier League this season. Ooh, big words. Um, elsewhere, Middlesbrough winning 2-0 over Bournemouth. Uh, first winning eight for Borough, uh, thanks to goals. Well, a fantastic goal from Gaston Ramirez. Uh, Stuart Downing as well with the second uh, against a Bournemouth team who looked uh, a little bit... Uh, well, the intensity was lowered from their, their, their draw with Spurs last week. An important win for Borough uh, and players like Ramirez, like Traore, looking impressive, Chris. He did, and he's... The thing with him, and, and I said this... Uh, actually, was it this weekend? It might have been this weekend. Yeah, the, the, in many ways, his performance against Bournemouth encapsulated both why he's so... I think highly rated and, and fans consider him exciting, but also why if you talk to Villa fans, they will speak ill of him because he is frustrating with his end product, yet he holds so much potential. So his ability to carry the ball is fantastic. I would say he's one of the best in the Premier League at that right now because of not just his speed, but I think his ability to dribble as well. What he does at the end of that play is the problem with him. And I think you saw a little bit um, against Bournemouth. Overall, I thought it was quite a good performance by Middlesbrough. They, they've, I mean, they got that good result at Arsenal. That was a good start for them. That's points they've got on in the last two games. I think they're showing their potential. They're just missing that little sprinkle of final touch. Some players, Negredo is a good example. So he gets the assist for, for the downing goal, but he did really badly needs a goal, I think, at the minute. Um, and even Gaston Ramirez, he's kind of in that position. He's one step ahead of Negredo where he's been chasing that goal and then gets rewarded with it with that wonderful 60-yard run that he goes on or whatever it is. Um, I like Middlesbrough. I think they've got a lot of potential to be safe and comfortably safe in the same way that Bournemouth were last year. Um, it's just going to be a, a case of riding the bumps at this point and not falling off because their togetherness has been so intrinsic to their success last season that if they can keep that and then find ways to get the most quality out of the, the star names like Negredo and Ramirez, mm. they'll be, I think they'll be comfortable. Mm. The form of Negredo right now is probably a worry for them, but regardless, they are up to 14th in the table on 10 points after that win, their first eight, as I said before. Elsewhere, the final game of the weekend, Watford winning 1-0 against Hull. Dave, a narrow win for them thanks to a late own goal winner taking them above Man United into 7th now. Um, it's been an impressive start. <coughs> Walter side. Yeah, if you remember last season, it was an impressive start under Kiki Sancho Flores, and then they dropped off in the second half of the season. No, but this Watford team looks good. Dini looks in form again. Agarlo are both playing quite well. Maybe not taking the chances, but looking good. Pereira is a very good acquisition for Juventus. Had a few chances yesterday. A fantastic curling shot from outside the area that was just wide. But yeah, they're they're ticking along, and this three-five-two uh, works for them at the moment. So yeah, they'll they'll continue picking up points, but I expect them to maybe drop off second half of the season. As for Hull, a sixth defeat in a row, Chris. Yeah, Hull are a bit of a mess. Um, the the differences with Hull, I think you can appropriate a lot of the blame to the owner. Because, I mean, you look at someone like Sam Klukas playing at left-back. They should have a left-back. They, they should have a lot of players that they just don't because the owner was a dick, for want of a better word. Um, I think he's royally shafted the fans. I think he's been doing that for a while when he tries to change the name and they don't want to do it and things like that. But not putting money into the club is just ridiculous. I think even if you say to someone who wants to buy the club, look, 
I'll loan you this money or whatever. That's one thing. But I just think it's given them absolutely no chance to stay up. And bar the occasional win that they might pick up in that faint smell of hope, I think they're going down quite comfortably. They just haven't got the squad for it. The, 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 squads, the squad that they went down with last time was, I think, largely the same as this one. So what chance did they realistically have? Well. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Oh, guys, there you have it. That is the Premier League wrapped up all this weekend's action there for you. Let's get on to this week's talking point, uh, which we're going to talk about Hoffenheim. So, the Bundesliga is a little bit different this year. Uh, the league is shaping up very nicely indeed. A number of teams are surprising and impressing in Germany. And with Dortmund stirring somewhat in six, teams like Leipzig and Hertha Berlin are right up there. But another team who are really impressing are Hoffenheim. Third place after five wins in a row now, Dave, after a 1-0 win over Hertha Berlin. Um, it's been an impressive stuff then, hasn't it? Massively, and Nagelsmann uh, came to Hoffenheim when they were in the relegation zone. Um, and since then, they've gone on to pick up 13 wins in the Bundesliga and 11 draws. If the table started then, they'd be third in the league behind Borussia Dortmund and Bayern Munich, sitting on 50 points. They've gone five games unbeaten for the first time in their history this season. Um, and the latest game, as you mentioned before, was the Hertha Berlin game. Um, the first time that I've managed to watch um Hoffenheim this season, and they were very progressive and very good with their pressing, lovely short passing. Ruddy in midfield was uh, excellent uh, defensive midfield, but it was the, the movement up front. You know, Kramerich, the player that was sort of cast away because of Jamie Vardy's form, has been brilliant for them this season. You know, he's registered five assists in the Bundesliga, but again, it's his movement, his ability to run in behind that's really causing opposition's problems. Same with Wagner, very energetic as well. And it's just, you know, Nagelsmann's really put this brand of football onto them. They were very, 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 very poor when they were bottom of the league. And it's the same sort of group of players, but he's getting that extra uh, level out of them. And the goal was was a fantastic uh, set piece, whipped into the back post. And um, our main man, the young German international, scored the goal. Um, <laughs> and it was it was a fantastic performance. But it is. It's impressive to see another young manager, you know, the youngest manager ever in Bundesliga history, stamping his authority on a side and then being very, 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 very impressive going forwards. And that's the, the best bit about it. It's a 3-5-2, but it looks like a 4-3-3. It looks like a, um, sometimes it looks like they've got four players up front. It's just all, it's a very combative style. And it's kind of a little bit sort of, you know, Jürgen Klopp-esque when he first went to Borussia Dortmund, when there were so many runners from every, every different angle that it was very difficult to play against. And Hertha Berlin are a hard nut to crack this season. Again, they are the surprise package they were last season. And they've kept that form. They've kept that 
uh, ability to nick one nils or nick two ones, but be defensively very, very sound. So it was a it was a bit of a test for um, Hoffenheim this today to to win this game. But they went through and they you know they they've they've got the points and. Again, they're, they're looking good, um, sitting in third in the Bundesliga behind the other surprise package, Red Bull, Leipzig, and obviously Bayern Munich at the top. Mm, and I mean, you said it there, Dave, the youngest manager in Bundesliga history. He's just 29, Julian Nagelsmann. He's gone from a youth coach to Bundesliga manager in just eight years. And he's turned around the fortunes of Hoffenheim already. And it has to be said, it looks like he's got a big future ahead of him, doesn't he? Um, it could be the next potential next Thomas Tuchel, I'd say. Um, you know, not, Jurgen Klopp is a very, very good manager, but this sort of Thomas Tuchel school of thought is quite interesting, and it's a very progressive way to play football, very adaptable. And I think that's where a lot of German coaches are going down that route of having this ultimate flexibility. And I think that's where football's going in terms of how you want to play. I've mentioned this before, but I think you know his work at um, the Hoffenheim under 19s, where they became a very dominant side, and I think they won. They definitely won it, the the league in the last year he was there, but that's why he got promoted because the under 19s were playing such a good brand of football. And again, he's doing that for Borussia Dortmund. You know, a team of Hoffenheim's strength, and he's gone on to win 52% of his games. Is credit to the manager, and I think that's the big thing. It's getting that extra level out of players. And you know, uh, Tim Weiser referenced him, nicknamed him the Mini Mourinho in terms of Mourinho. What Mourinho, you know, used to be good at doing is sort of having a collective group and bringing, you know, taking them all to the next level. You know, that Porto team was like that. And that's what's kind of happening at Hoffenheim in Germany. But it's a very interesting story and a story that we are going to continue to follow. Um, and, you know, potentially he'll be at Bayern Munich in maybe 10 years wow. or maybe even five years. Wow. But he's, he's, desti- he's destined for something like that. The other interesting aspect of this story, Chris, um, apart from their success this season, the way that Nagelsmann has turned their fortunes around as the youngest manager in Bundesliga history is, of course, this issue we spoke about with regards to Leipzig just a few weeks ago, you know, them being the most hated club in Germany. Hoffenheim and their ownership are controversial in their own right as well, aren't they, Chris? Yeah, Dietmar Hopp is, is the owner. Um, he is the co-founder of SAP AG, um, and I'm not entirely sure what they do. Um, I believe they make software. Software, um, yeah. And it, it estimates his, his net worth at $6.3 billion uh, US dollars. So, again, he's not struggling to pay the electricity bill. And he decided to, to buy Hoffenheim and essentially take them from the, the lower leagues all the way up, and I remember many years ago actually watching a Trans World Sport feature on it, and it was a fairly interesting story. It was kind of this Brewster's Millions type situation, and as someone who lives in a, a small-ish city called Durham, um, I could kind of relate because it sounds like a wonderful idea of having Durham in the Bundesliga or the Premier League uh, to draw a comparison. But the, the curious thing is, as much as we talk about Leipzig being this horrible, um, you know, uh, abnormality in the Bundesliga because they don't operate with 50 plus one and they flounce the membership rules. Hoffenheim are in a similar position. The only thing you could say about Leipzig is it's a city that can support a Bundesliga team. It's a big enough city, at least, to to draw in those crowds. Hoffenheim is not a big place. Um, And this is very much someone who wanted to fulfil a dream rather than someone, I don't know how you would even explain the Leipzig comparison, in, in the sense of I think Red Bull picked a city where you could argue it was deserved to have a Bundesliga side, whereas 
you would argue Hoffenheim isn't really big enough. That's why they've never been a Bundesliga side prior to, to his arrival. At least not not to my knowledge, anyway. I mean, we spoke about this issue a few weeks ago with regards to Leipzig, as I said, and Hoffenheim kind of play into that in terms of the controversy they generate in terms of their lack of tradition, some would say, um, some German fans would say. Um, and as you said, that sort of coming from that small town and, and, and lacking that history in a way, we were speaking about how Leipzig is a, is a threat to the traditions that are held by German football clubs. Obviously, Hoffenheim potentially uh, sets a dangerous precedent themselves. How do you feel German football needs to move, Chris, in terms of holding on to that tradition, holding on to the way their league is run and competing with the likes of the Premier League, which is the most watched, the most rich league in the world. Do you think the Bundesliga needs to, in a way, step away from that tradition and move towards uh, something closer to what Hoffenheim and maybe Leipzig represent? I don't necessarily feel comfortable lecturing uh, society and culture that's not my own and how it should be run. I think if you have to find a solution to the situation, because I think now you do, the fact that Leipzig are in there, the fact that Hoffenheim are there, I believe Hanover are moving towards a similar identity. I'd be tempted to say you put it to a fan vote and, and let them decide. You let registered members of... Because that's the other thing. If you just put it to a vote, anyone could theoretically vote. I think you can go one of two routes in that sense. You can make it a public vote, as if it were an election or something like that. Or you could open it up to every single uh, member of a Bundesliga club and let them decide how they want to do it. Because I think there are certainly still clubs that will will exist that way. St. Pauli are an example of a team I can't ever see shifting from that approach. But it's clear that with the move like Hanover and things like that, there are those who perhaps feel it's more beneficial to be that way. I can understand both sides. I think it's wonderful to to have that history and that identity. I see the potential in shifting away, but then also the fear that that brings for traditionalists. It is just such an interesting debate, such an interesting contrast, this clash between you know, the, the, the tradition of German football, which is regarded so highly around the world and some of the realities of modern football and how they sort of intersect. I mean, with Hoffenheim, with Leipzig, uh, having such success in the Bundesliga right now, maybe it does bring up this issue. Maybe there needs to be a middle ground uh, between the two sort of clashing philosophies almost. Um, But of course, that's easier said than done. Uh, Guys, let us know what you think about Hoffenheim, about the Bundesliga, about this debate at the front free on Twitter, get your thoughts in, get your questions in as well for Wednesday's podcast. We'll be doing a Q&A then as always. But until then, Dave, where can the good people find more of you? Just jump over to YouTube, um, type in Dave Talks and go and check out some of my videos. Guys, go and do it. Um, there's a great one there about Pochettino. That's a, a brand new one, isn't it, Dave? Mm, brand spanking new. And then we've got the Match Day vlog from the EFL Cup that I really enjoy doing. And that's the first one I've ever done, so... Go and check out and give me your thoughts as well. What can I improve? What I did right? What I did wrong? Good stuff. And uh, Chris, where can the good people find you before Wednesday? Twitter, Facebook, the the usual. Um, I don't have a YouTube channel, although Yet. I do frequent the front threes. Oh, good stuff. Um, guys, you can follow me on Twitter at Adam Bolt. Do leave us your reviews 
on iTunes and your ratings, uh, the best review or our favorite review. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I should say, will be comment of the week on Wednesday. Until then, have a bloody great week.